Good morning, Hopevale. Happy spring, I guess. You know, a nice, cool spring day. First day of spring, if you missed that. Let's go ahead and stand together. We want to give God our praise today. We want to invite him into this place. We want to ask that he is just a little bit closer to us. We know that uh, where two or more are gathered, he is there. So this is just our declaration, our admitting uh, and requesting that uh, we open our hearts and allow God to be part of our praise today. We want to ask for his presence in this place. There is no life without you. You have all that we need. Where you are, every fear is broken. And the darkness must flee. We want to be close to you, God. Closer and closer, we want to know you. Reaching out, reaching out. Hearing your presence, we want to go deeper in your life. Of a life, yeah. There is no one but you, God. There is no i uh-huh. 
this, that we need to look to the heavens, look to our Lord, where our help comes from. No matter what we are going through, He is our help in troubled times. We give Him praise, Him alone. In the midst of the darkness, you're the light that guides me through. Are on you. You are near to the broken, though we find the strength in you. Our eyes are on you, Jesus.
love those words. I love uh, we're, we're singing straight scripture out of the Psalms that reminds us that we need God's help, uh, even not just in troubled times, but all of the time. We need to follow after him. Um, again, welcome to Hope Vale. We're glad that you have joined us on this day, first day of spring. It's also Palm Sunday. We are excited to celebrate all that God has done and is doing with you. But before we continue, we just want to uh, see who's around us today. Why don't we grab the hands of a few people and welcome them here today. All right, you can go ahead and have a seat. Again, welcome uh, on this day. Uh, this is Palm Sunday, and we're excited about, you know, all that God is doing, all that he has done, all that he did through his son, Jesus Christ. Um, and uh, we just respond to him through our worship, through our praise. Uh, we respond with loud hosannas and singing glory to God in the highest because of who he is and uh, because of his character, because of that truth. And we worship through our singing. Um, we're going to hear from the word in just a few minutes as well. And this is just our time to worship through our offering today. Our ushers are going to come forward and I'll pray as we enter into this time. God, you are so good. And your love really endures forever. Um, nothing can shake the truth of who you are. And we respond to you uh, with our praise, with our worship, with our hearts. And God, we respond in this time just presenting our offering to you and presenting it uh, in humility and thankfulness for all that you have done, how you have given us uh, so much, so much in your provision and your daily bread. And we pray that you would continue to use uh, these gifts to grow your kingdom, to grow your presence um, on this earth, in this community, and beyond, for your great name's sake. And we pray that through the great name of Jesus. Amen.
And on this day, as we think about all that God has done, all that God has done for us through his son, Jesus, and we give him praise, and we uh, remember the cross, we remember Calvary, we remember the burden that only Christ could bear for us, for our sin, for our shame. And we rejoice in his sacrifice, what he did for us.
thank you so much for all that you have done through your son, Jesus Christ, how you have covered over our sin, our shame. Open our hearts to hear from you this day. Change us from the inside out, God. Change us into your image. We love you. We praise you. Easter is coming up fast. It's an early one this year, March 27th. I know. Can you believe it? So, when you hear me say the word Easter, what's the first thing that comes to mind? For some of you, it's the Easter Bunny. Can't have Easter without him. Or what about peeps? Whether you love them or hate them, you got to admit they're everywhere this time of year. And then you got your eggs, right? You got the plastic eggs, you got the real eggs, you got the dye, the works. Or maybe it's an Easter basket. Who doesn't love a good Easter basket? Because that's what holds the candy, right? Although you gotta admit, this grass, it gets everywhere. And then for some of you, what's Easter Sunday without a ham? <clears throat> or maybe not. We got a lot of fun traditions this time of year here at Hope Bell. We love to celebrate Easter too, because when we think Easter, we think this, nothing. Nothing as in an empty tomb. As Christians, we believe Easter's the day that Jesus, our God, rose from the dead. And he offers us a hope that's beyond our wildest imaginations. And we'd love for you to celebrate Easter with us this year. You know, maybe going to church was one of your old traditions on Easter, but it didn't mean that much to you. Give it another shot. Or maybe it's time for you to start some new traditions, because Easter, it really happened. We believe the first Easter was the day that changed everything. We believe it's the biggest reason to celebrate. So come and join us this Easter Sunday. We'd love to see you there. Oh, yeah. And bring your peeps. Really? That's the best we got? So they, they tell me this is supposed to make you want to invite family and friends, but watching it again, I am not so sure. Um, but if you do still want to come, and seriously, I hope you do, Easter's this Sunday. We can't wait. Four services like we've been talking about, 8, 9.30, 11, 12.30, doors are going to open 20 minutes before each service. We're going to do valet seating like we do on Christmas Eve as well. We'll have Tatown programming for children birth through pre-K at each service. We'll also have the family venue open. As I've mentioned the last couple of weeks, if you're a Hopewell regular, we would love for you to attend at either 8 or 12.30 to make room for visitors. And 9.30 and 11 then can be open for those who are coming to us for the first time. Oh, also too, that if you do happen to bring some of your peeps this Easter, make sure they stop by the Welcome Center because we have some nice, sugary, gooey, yellowy treats that we want to give them, and we'd love to meet them. So that's Easter. And then three days before Easter, this Thursday, we'll have our Monday, Thursday communion services at 6 and 7.30. This is the time for us as Christians to reflect on the cross 
and all that Jesus did for us. We'll meet right here. We'll go for an hour. Young children will have Tot Town open at the six o'clock service. Now, I, I get it, right? Thursday night church isn't part of the normal drill around here, but let me tell you, you need to make this one a priority. You really do. Set aside the time. Come and worship with us. You're not going to regret it. I, I promise, all right? This Thursday. So that's what we have to look forward to this week. But today, I want to pick up where we left off last week. So we began our series, The Last Days of Jesus. Last Sunday, we looked at the story of Jesus with his disciples in the upper room, where they not only shared this last meal together, but Jesus also assumes the role of a house servant and washes the feet of his disciples. And remember what he said afterwards? He said, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Now that you know these things, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Wow. It's this incredibly powerful word picture, right? Both in word and deed. That should pro- just you know, impact us deeply as his followers that we too need to be rooted in a gospel identity, just like Jesus was, a gospel destiny. And when we are, we're going to be freed and empowered to lovingly serve others in the name of Jesus. Now, as memorable as Jesus' act of humility is, it's actually one of several things that took place in the upper room. As we read in the Gospels, we see that it's here where Jesus institutes the ordinance of communion, this act of worship that we as his church still observed 2,000 years later. It's here in the upper room where Jesus tells his disciples that one of them will betray him. And it's also here in the upper room where Jesus paints this vision of their future as his church, including the promise of the coming Holy Spirit. There was a lot that took place that evening in the upper room, but as they say, the night is young. The night is young in the story of Jesus, and there is so much more that's still awaiting him in these next several hours. We're told in the Gospels that as they all sung a hymn together as their time in the upper room wrapped up, from there they proceeded to a place outside Jerusalem known as the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives, and then on their way to the Mount of Olives, they stopped at a place known as the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane, meaning oil press. So you've got this garden area, right, all among the garden groves where olives would be pressed to make olive oil. Now Jesus, or John tells us, excuse me, in his gospel, that Jesus and his disciples would often go there, right? Now we're not told why, but my guess is that the setting is rather serene, right? It's outside the bustle of the city, and I'm sure it provided this great environment just for teaching and praying and hanging out together as Jesus would often do with his disciples. So they come to the Garden of Gethsemane, and that's where we're going to pick up this story today. So I invite you to join me in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26, chapter 26, beginning in verse 36. Now, if you take a quick glance at the chapter, you're going to see all these passage headings that lead up to this story. Headings like the plot against Jesus, Jesus anointed at Bethany. Jesus agrees to, or Judas agrees to betray Jesus, the Last Supper, and Jesus predicts Peter's denial, where Peter boldly declares to Jesus, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. 
We're told that the other disciples basically said the same thing as well. And so it's on the heels of this rather awkward exchange between Jesus and his disciples that we pick things up in verse 36. Matthew 26, verse 36. Let's take a look. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John along with him. So here's Jesus with the three disciples that he was closest to. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. The New Living Translation puts it this way. My soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. There is something very intense that's going on inside of Jesus, right? You know, it's interesting because the word used here to describe his inner turmoil is rather rare. There's only two other stories in the Bible where you see it. It's used of King Herod and his distress and not wanting to take the life of John the Baptist, but feeling compelled to please his wife and keep a promise he made to her. We see it there. We also see it in the story of the rich young ruler who says that he wants to follow Jesus, but he's also too tangled up inside by how enslaved he is to his wealth. The only other times in the Bible you see this emotionally intense word. And so here it is. And so when Jesus tells Peter and James and John, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death, we are clued in that there's some kind of extreme emotional tug of war going on within Jesus. This inner conflict that's unlike anything else he's ever had to deal with before. So what is this conflict? Verse 39. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground, and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. His emotions are so intense. The agony is so extreme that Jesus actually falls down. And with his face to the ground, assuming his posture of humility and surrender, Jesus prays, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Now, those of us who are familiar with this story, we want to rush to the last part of this verse, right? And I get why. It is one of the most remarkable expressions of dependent prayer ever recorded. And so we're going to talk about that more later on. But before that, I think we first need to spend a moment with the first half of Jesus's prayer here. When he says, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. May this cup be taken from me. What's this cup Jesus is praying about? And why does he ask for it to be taken from him? What does this all mean? Right? Well, indeed, that's the key that unlocks everything here, understanding more about this cup. And so to know what Jesus is asking for, we need to go back and dig a little deeper into the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures that Jesus and his disciples knew very well. Because the cup is mentioned numerous times there. Here are a couple examples. Psalm 75, verse 7, verse 8, it is God who judges He brings one down, he exalts another. And the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out, and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dredges. Then look at this, Isaiah 51, verse 17. Awake, awake, rise up, Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. 
the cup of his wrath, you who have drained it to its dredges, the goblet that makes people stagger. The cup. The cup. So what is this cup that Jesus is asking his father to take away from him? It's this, that the cup is a symbol for the actual suffering that comes with God's righteous judgment and wrath. It is the actual suffering that comes with God's righteous judgment and wrath. Now, at this point, you might be wondering, well, what in the world does the cup have to do with Jesus, right? After all, when those verses in the Old Testament talk about the cup, it's about wicked people. It's about wicked nations who are receiving the Lord's wrath, this kind of judgment that is rightfully deserved for all their evil. Well, and that kind of makes sense, right? But for Jesus, for the innocent, spotless, pure Lamb of God, what could he have possibly done to warrant such horror? Why is he praying for the cup of God's wrath and judgment to be taken from him? What is going on with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? Now, I really hope you are asking yourself questions like these, or some version of them. I really do, because it is right here in the Garden of Gethsemane that we get to the heart of Christianity. This is the heart of Christianity. Here is Jesus. He is working through this emotional inner conflict, a conflict so intense that Luke, in his gospel, tells us that Jesus sweats literal drops of blood as he's praying. Real, honest-to-goodness drops of blood. This physio-emotional phenomenon where the stress is so extreme that it actually causes a person to bleed through their pores. This even has a medical name, hematidrosis. Latin, boom, med school, drop the mic, thank you very much, right? Hematidrosis. Seriously, though, what is it that could cause such a reaction in Jesus? Well, contrary to popular belief, it isn't the prospect of him having to endure all the physical torture that awaited him, both on the cross and everything before it. As brutal as that will be, that's not the cup. Nor is the cup the emotional anguish of what? Of being betrayed, denied, mocked, ridiculed, rejected, and deserted. That's not it either. No, the cup that Jesus is praying about here is the same cup of the Old Testament. It's the cup of the actual suffering that comes with God's righteous judgment and wrath. The judgment and wrath rightfully due for all the sins of the world, including yours, including mine, that will be placed upon Jesus as he is crucified on the cross as the ultimate sacrifice and substitution to satisfy the perfect justice of a holy God who is also his heavenly Father. This is the heart of Christianity. And this is why this moment in the Garden of Gethsemane is so pivotal. It is pivotal in God's plan being accomplished. It is pivotal in our salvation being secured. Listen, if Jesus is able to drink the cup of God's wrath that will be poured out upon him on the cross, then we have hope. We have hope. But if he isn't, we're doomed. We're doomed forever. That's what's going on here, and the stakes could not get any higher. Now, I'm not naive, right? I I know that we live in the year 2016, and all this talk of wrath and judgment sounds so primitive and barbaric, right? I mean, who even uses words like that these days? Talk of ISIS, maybe, but Christianity and its message of love? No way. 
or maybe yes way. And maybe the Jesus who is portrayed in our culture as having this anything goes and I'll accept everything kind of attitude really isn't the true Jesus we see in the Bible. No, the Jesus we see in the Bible is the Jesus we see right here praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's the real Jesus. Let's go back again, verse 39. He fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Jesus, the Son of God, who before coming to this earth spent all of eternity past with his heavenly Father in perfect, undisturbed fellowship. Jesus, who went all throughout his earthly life, though tempted, had never given in to the allure of sin, thus remained unstained by its awfulness. This Jesus knew and felt the horror that was awaiting him at the cross. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And so in this moment of vulnerability, Jesus in all his humanity isn't quite sure he's going to be able to go through with it. He isn't, and so he prays, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. My Father, if there is any other way for your perfect justice to be satisfied, then do it. Father, are there any other options out there besides me having to bear the terror of your wrath? Because I don't think I can do it. That's what Jesus' prayer is all about. And let me just add, don't be put off by words like judgment and wrath. That is, at least when it comes to God, okay? Okay. Now, with people, I get it. Human wrath is violent and volatile. Human wrath is undeserved and unpredictable. So let me be clear. I'm against human wrath, and so is the Bible, but that's not the kind of wrath we're talking about here. No, when it comes to God and his wrath, we are talking about a pure and intense anger uh, that's directed towards all sin toward all evil, toward all injustice, and everything else that goes against his perfect moral character. See, maybe you've never thought about this before, but a God who turns a blind eye to sin, who lets evil slide, who is indifferent to injustice, a God who really doesn't care when human selfishness hurts others, a God like that isn't worthy of our worship. You know, I think about what's going on right now an hour south of us with the water crisis in Flint, where everyone is incensed by not only the lead poisoning of little children, but also by the layers of deceit and cover-up and, and finger-pointing. Now, who's to blame and what should happen to them? That's, you know, fraught with political and opinionated, you know, ideas. But this overall fact that people are so enraged, that makes sense to us, doesn't it? It really does, and it should get a rise out of us. And so all that anger over such injustice, you know, that's part of the image of God in you as a created human being. God put that strong sense of justice and rightness and fairness in you. See, we love to talk about the love of God, and rightfully so. But that is just one aspect of who he is. It's the God of the Bible, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is also a God of perfect justice. He is a God of absolute holiness. He is a God of divine wisdom. And so everything that he knows, everything that he feels, everything that he does, it's right. It's right all the time. That's why he is worthy of our worship, and that's why you shouldn't shy away from words like wrath and judgment when it comes to God. So back to Jesus. 
There he is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying to his heavenly father. His soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Why? Because he knows that the only way that God can rescue and forgive simple people like us is for him to bear the wrath and judgment that we rightfully deserve. This is God's plan to reconcile us back to himself. There is no other way for us to atone, to cover, to pay for our own sin and selfishness. And deep down, in that moment of prayer, I think Jesus knew that. I really do, but even still, he thought he would ask his heavenly Father one last time, if it is possible. If it is possible, may this cup of your righteous wrath that is about to be poured out upon me on the cross, may it be taken from me. Listen, I know I have talked a lot about this aspect of this story, but you are never going to understand Christianity. You are never going to experience the gift of God's forgiveness through Jesus Christ that he wants to give you if you don't get the enormity of what's going on here. You don't understand all that Jesus suffered when he was crucified on the cross. Because the dread that he felt that night in the garden was about, that he was about to face, you know, it was so overwhelming And yet, as terrifying as that was, Jesus made a choice. Jesus chose not to end his prayer at, may this cup be taken from me. He spoke it, he was honest about it, but he kept on going and said, out of his incredible love for us, out of his obedience to his heavenly Father, his desire to honor and please him, he says what? He says, yet not as I will, but as you will. If it is possible, yes, but he goes on. Yet not as I will, but as you will. You will never see another prayer that is so loving, so selfless, so obedient as the one that Jesus prays right here. Father, I'll be honest. I really don't want to go through the horror of what I'm about to experience. And I think you can understand that. But I also know and believe and trust that you have my very best in mind. I believe that with all my heart too. And so if you think that me going through with this is not only best for mankind, but also for me, then I will submit my feelings of dread in this moment to you, and I will obey what you have asked me to do. That's what Jesus prayed when he said, yet not my will, but your will be done. Can we just pause for a moment and as an act of worship say, wow. Jesus made that choice. Jesus prayed that prayer for you, for me. Because without it, there is no Good Friday. There is no Easter. There is no forgiveness. And there is no hope for any of us. That is how crucial Gethsemane is. And thanks be to God that Jesus did make that choice. He did pray that prayer and that changes everything. Amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Well, let's go back to the story, verse 40. Then he, Jesus, returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So here's Jesus. He's with his three closest friends at the most trying time of his life. He tells them that his soul soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, and he asks them for a simple favor then. I'm going to go over there and pray. 
Would you keep watch with me? Would you stay awake and pray for me? Doesn't seem like he's asking for too much, and how do they repay the favor? They fall asleep. They let him down. They fail him. You know, I think Matthew includes this moment in retelling the story, not only because it happened, but also to highlight the fact that Jesus is now in this thing alone. That is, at least in terms of human companionship. All by himself, and so it's only going to be by the grace of God and answered prayer that he is going to find strength to make it to the very end. Verse 42. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. There it is again. May your will be done. May your will be done in my life at this moment. Now, some Bible scholars point out the variation in wording here compared with what we saw earlier in verse 39, that Jesus might be asking for something a little different this second time around, that he didn't pray for the cup to be taken from him, but rather he prayed for success in drinking it, suggesting some kind of movement, some kind of progress with Jesus. It's an interesting observation, and maybe that's what Matthew's trying to communicate here, but to me, I just think the bigger point still remains. This is Jesus submitting to and desiring the will of his heavenly Father above all else. May your will be done, verse 43. When he, Jesus, came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy, so he left them and went away one more time and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. You know, some people wonder why Jesus essentially prayed the same thing three times in a row. Didn't he think his father heard him the first time? Didn't he have enough faith that he didn't have to keep on praying? You know, what's going on here? Well, that's not it, right? Because prayer isn't about snapping your fingers and God rushing to your attention. Prayer isn't about you rubbing the magic lamp and immediately getting your three wishes granted. Now, prayer is much more than that. Prayer is an admission of our need to God. It's a declaration of our dependence. It is an expression of our desire, and it is a confession of our trust. Praying about the same thing multiple times isn't disbelief. It's persistence. It's sincerity. It's faith. God, I need you, and I just want you to know that. That's what Jesus is praying. Verse 45, Then he returned to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. That somehow through all the anguish, through all the prayer, through all that his Father had given him, Jesus is now ready to face everything that will lead him to the cross, including what's next, being betrayed by one of his own disciples, Judas Iscariot. Somehow, though, through surrendering his will to that of his heavenly Father, Jesus has not only found the strength to keep on going, but he's also been given the peace and assurance that God's plan for him will not fail. Now, this Thursday night at our communion service, we're going to pick up the story and see what happens after this. But for today, as we begin to wind down, I want us to think about what Jesus' simple prayer of surrender means for us. Now, I have already talked at length about what was at stake in that moment, how on the cross, in your place, Jesus bore the righteous wrath of God that should be yours. And how your faith in Jesus and all that he's done for you is the only way for you to be forgiven, the only way for you to be brought into a forever relationship back with your God. I mean, that's what was at stake in each, for each one of us in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? But beyond that, 
I think not just what Jesus did for us, but what Jesus modeled for us. I think back to the passage last week in John 13 when Jesus said, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done, because there's another example here today for us as Christians to follow, that in the face of adversity, for us to be able to generally pray, yet not as I will, but as you will, I believe this kind of faith and surrender really is the key to our Christian growth. It really is the key and pathway to our everlasting joy. And Jesus has given to us, given it to us. You know, one of the things I love about this passage is that we get a front row seat to see how genuine Jesus' faith really is as he emotionally wrestles in prayer with his father about the choice that's before him. It's real, right? It's honest. And yet it's far from automatic, right? Far from automatic. See, one of the things that really frustrates me about churches and pastors is how they portray faith, right? That faith is this clear-cut, yes, no, devoid of emotion, decision of the will, that if you really love God, that if you really have faith, then obeying his word and doing what he said should come to you quickly and naturally with no hesitation whatsoever. That's faith, they tell us. And so as churches and pastors set this high bar, unrealistic standard of what real faith should look like, we beat ourselves up. Because for us, it doesn't come quickly, it doesn't come naturally, and there is some hesitation, and so we conclude that we must be bad Christians for feeling the way we do with all our uncertainty. Well, let me tell you, if that's what real faith looks like, then not only do we fail to measure up, but Jesus in the garden also fails to measure up as well. Which should tell us what? That the problem maybe isn't so much with our faith, but rather it's with this unrealistic picture of what our faith should look like. See, here's the thing. Real faith isn't automatic. Real faith is authentic. And struggle and doubt do not disqualify you, right? And so if you can let Jesus' example here in the Garden of Gethsemane teach you about genuine faith and honest prayer and heartfelt surrender, I really think you're going to begin to see incredible spiritual transformation take place in your life. I really do. Because real faith isn't automatic, it's authentic. It is rough, it is unpolished, but it is also incredibly honest and sincere, just like we see with Jesus. So let's go ahead and make this even more personal. While you and I will never face anything remotely close to what Jesus experiences in this story, we will have those moments of decision, those forks in the road where we know what God wants us to do, but deep inside we just don't want to do it, right? I know you've been there. I have. We're scared. We're afraid. And when we picture ourselves choosing God's will over our own, it feels like death. It really does. And so how can we possible surrender, possibly surrender to God in moments like those, in moments like, you know, maybe it's you having to have a tough conversation with someone you'd rather avoid. Maybe it's you returning something you've stolen. Maybe it's you coming clean with your spouse about a secret you've kept from them and then asking for their forgiveness. Or maybe it's you being on the receiving end of forgiving someone who's wronged you. Maybe it's you mustering up courage to invite a friend to a church on Easter. Maybe it's you taking on that ministry role God's been nudging you toward. Or maybe it's you finally surrendering your life over to the Lord and believing in Jesus as your Savior. Whatever it might be for you, we all are going to have our Gethsemane moments. 
we will. And they're hard. And when they come, will we choose to surrender or will we choose self-preservation where we essentially say, God, my will, not yours, right? Listen, God is okay with the struggle. You need to know that. God is okay with the raw honesty. After all, Jesus prayed, what? If it is possible, right? Take this cup from me. If it is possible. So if you're in a Gethsemane moment, it's okay to pray to God and say, God, if it were up to me, I'd rather not do this. God, if there's another way out of it, I need you to show me. It's just you being honest with God and trust me, God is big enough to handle your honesty. He really is. So listen, it's okay for you to pray that, but you can't stop there. Because real faith starts with honesty, but it also has to continue with surrender. Real faith starts with honesty, but it also has to continue with surrender. See, after laying it all out like that, there's got to come that time of surrender, that time where the words of your mouth, where the attitude of your heart are just like Jesus, where he prays, yet not as I will, but as you will. God, I'm letting go. God, I am trusting you. Real faith starts with honesty, but it also has to continue with surrender. So how can we get to that place? How can we actually do it? Just like Jesus, surrender comes when we truly know and worship God. Worship, it said, drives out worry. It comes when we can remember his faithfulness to us in the past. It comes when we can trust that he will provide strength for our weakness and empower us to do what we cannot do on our own. And it comes when we believe that our Father has our best in mind and that he will see us through to the very end. That is real faith, authentic faith. And so as we close today, as we prepare for this week leading up to Easter, let me ask you, are you in a Gethsemane moment right now? Are you in a place where God is asking you to do the seemingly impossible? Is there something with you where right now you feel like you are overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death? This internal back and forth pulling and pushing? You know, whatever it is, don't run from it in fear, but face it with faith, with real faith, with authentic faith, where you can bring all of it to your Heavenly Father with an honest heart, with open hands of surrender, and say, God, may your will be done in me. This is the example Jesus leaves for us, and he tells us that it truly is the pathway to life. Let's pray together. Lord, right before this message, we sang that Calvary covers it all. And it does. The cross is enough for us. And yet there is no cross without Gethsemane. There is no cross without surrender. And so thank you. Thank you for the honest, real, authentic faith and surrender of Jesus when he desires your will more than his own safety. Lord, as Christians, we thank you once again that Jesus prayed that prayer, that he made that choice. And may it cause in us 
a renewed sense of worship and gratitude for our Savior Jesus. For those here who maybe never really knew what the cross was about, may they see this act of love for them and this invitation to real faith. And then God, as we continue to walk with you and follow you, if we find ourselves in a Gethsemane moment, help us to be honest, help us to be real, help us to express our worry to you because you're big enough to handle it, and then give us the strength to do what we cannot do ourselves and surrender our will to you, to you, knowing, believing, trusting that it really is for our best and for your glory. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together and respond with a song of worship. We want to respond just proclaiming that wherever God takes us, we will follow. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. When you move, I'll move. I will follow.
Boy, what a great song that really reflects the spirit of that passage. I think of that just very first line, you know, all your ways are good, all your ways are sure, I will trust in you alone. That's what it is to have faith in our God. So it's Easter week, we want to see you Thursday, we want to see you Sunday, and as you go from here, may the Lord Jesus Christ carry you and lead you forward. God bless you.